Greetings, travelers! Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest, where we bring you fairy tales, legends, myths, and folklore from all around the world. We are your hosts, Fox and Sparrow. Hello, travelers! For those like us in the Northern Hemisphere, I hope you've had a great summer. I, for one, have had a pleasant summer where I got to catch up on some of my video game backlog and spend some quality time at the cottage. Of course, all that's been sandwiched between work and the podcast and unfortunately getting sick this past week, um, which has been so much fun. Um, but otherwise, it's been great. How about you, Fox? How's your summer been? Um, busy, lots of work, lots of dying in the humidity and the heat. <laughs> so I'm very much looking forward for the fall season. Unfortunately, I feel like fall is the perfect time to watch shows like Gilmore Girls, but I can't stand mm. Gilmore Girls. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna have to find a new fall vibe show that isn't frustrating to watch. Uh, so if anyone has any recommendations, I'd love to know because I really like to put on shows in the background, and that's what I did last fall with Gilmore Girls, because it has the perfect atmosphere and small town vibes. It's got a love story. It's got mom and daughter, family, feel good. But I feel like as the seasons went on, it got more frustrating, so I can't rewatch it. So yeah, if anyone has any good fall shows, I would love to know because I'm looking for background shows. But otherwise, it's been fun. One thing that happened to me earlier this summer is that I was talking with my five-year-old niece, and uh, she actually had asked me about uh, the story of the princess and the pea. And at the time, I did my best to recall the story to her. Um, but as I was like kind of wrapping up the tale at, at the ending, um, I couldn't help but feel I was missing something. Like, I felt like I was forgetting something or missing some aspect of the story while I was retelling it. And while not all fairy tales have moral lessons at the end, it to me really felt like I was missing or forgetting what the takeaway of the story was. And I couldn't really piece it together. Um, so I thought, hey, why not just talk about with my dear friend Fox over here and we can pick apart this classic tale. Yes. So I think when I first reread this story, when you typed it up for our script, I was just kind of a bit underwhelmed because I was waiting for something <laughs> big to happen or some. Well, you know, like in some stories we have lots of plot twists and we have five different pages in the document with notes and we're kind of trying to figure out like what do we include? What do we not include? But this was not even a full page of storytelling so I was kind of trying to figure out why this story has such a long-lasting effect because when you say the princess and the pea obviously everyone imagines the towering stack of mattresses and the, you know the princess on top sometimes she has to use a ladder to get there and she has you know a bad sleep because there's a pea like a single pea underneath the bottom mattress so you know people obviously have some kind of imagery that comes up when they think of this story but I also had the same problem where I was trying to figure out what is the moral take? What is the takeaway we ta we have? Because um, mm -hmm. even I feel like the fables we've covered on this show, even like the, the short stories that we've covered, they've always had some kind of grounding. And this one just seemed like a tongue-in-cheek story. Obviously, being an English major, I had to do more. I had to do some digging. Uh, look for the criticism, look for the, obviously, people who also were trying to figure out what the moral take on this story is. And I feel like I did find some really good research. Um, so I'm really happy and excited to share that with you guys later because it is a very simple story that does seem kind of meaningless. And 
I mean, I grew up reading, obviously, Gail Carson Levine. I've talked about her before. She rewrote a bunch of fairy tales and she made them into the fairy books. And I think it was also the princess tales books. And those were kind of my first exposure to some of these stories, including the princess and the pea. So I always thought there was more to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I really did like about this story in general is I liked that it was almost like a bride test as opposed to a suitor test. And just kind of comparing it even to last episode where we had the 12 dancing princesses and they were doing a suitor test. And the problem was if you couldn't solve it, you'd be killed after three days. So it's kind of life or death. Um, Whereas here, it's just, did you have a good night's sleep or not? So it's, it's, (laughs) it's funny to see like the scale, the gravity of the situation. Obviously, the princess didn't come here looking for a husband. She wasn't here doing any kind of established test so it was a bit of a one-off but I just like that comparison in my head where sometimes it's life or death if the prince does it but when the princess it's when it's her turn to do a test she's just having to have a good night's sleep or not and just a disclaimer not to diminish real stories that have a actual bride test um like east of the sun west of the moon where she actually did go on a quest and a journey and I think at the end didn't she have to wash a shirt? I mean, she did a lot of stuff, but that was the final like kicker was, yeah, can you wash a shirt? And that was <laughs> that was the ultimate to big point, you know. Yeah, so I feel like sometimes in fairy tales, the the difference in what's requested of you or what's on the line is a little bit interesting to say the least. But yes, I'm very excited to talk about some of the morals of the story at the end and kind of the background of the story because I feel like Anderson put a lot of himself in his works. Um, And while he didn't directly talk about, you know, this is what I wrote the story for, he did mention these stories, including the princess on the P, a lot in his letters. So very excited to share that. So stick around for the story and for the five fantastic binds. And that, let's cozy up to this week's story of the princess and the P. Once upon a time, there was a prince who wanted to find a princess. But not just any princess. He wanted to find a real princess. Which begs the question, who qualifies as a real princess? Whether the prince's preconceived notions of what a real princess was came from noble snobbery, a witch's curse, or a self-imposed suitor challenge, I suppose... The fact remained that the prince was determined to find a real princess. So he traveled around the world meeting princesses from all over. But there was always something wrong with each of them, and he could never be sure that they were real. After a very disappointing trip, he decided to return home. One dark and stormy night, there was knocking at the city gates. For plot reasons, the old king went out to open it. You know, instead of a young, strong castle guard on this night with pouring rain. So the old king opened the door, and standing at the door was a princess drenched from head to toe. And the old queen rolled her eyes and thought that they would find out if this was true soon enough. So this is kind of where we have our first real look at the princess who, you know, we don't spend a lot of time with. But I feel like a lot of people like to point to this scene, specifically critics, where it's a stormy scene and obviously she's looking for help as an indicator that the princess is not as helpless as she initially seems. 
uh, but she's quite brave and resourceful for weathering the storm and making her way over to the palace and then asking for help. Of course, there are lots of variations to this story and Anderson specifically chose one where the princess didn't really have a lot to say and she wasn't deceitful. However, in other variations of this tale, we do hear that the princess learned about the pea trick and the pea test prior to seeking out the palace. So she was going in there with the idea that she was going to do the test and she was going to succeed. Whereas kind of in Anderson's original tale that he told, because um, the story did exist prior to his retelling of it, um, she's coming to the palace kind of unaware of the prince looking for a bride. In fact, I don't think she even meets him. She just meets the queen. So this is just a spur of the moment test the queen pulls out of nowhere in a kind of spiteful way, I guess, because there's no reason to test this random princess. You don't even know if she wants to marry your son. But this is kind of the first indicator that not all is as it seems in this story. I get the impression this has happened a lot. Like people have heard that the prince is looking for a real princess. So she says it and she's like, oh, good. Another one of you. Yeah, well, OK, let's, let's just settle this. Settle this the hard way. With a P. See, I feel like Anderson very specifically doesn't include any of that preamble in this story. It's very much seems like it's kind of a happen chance or a coincidence the princess happened to come to the palace and the queen comes up with this plan. Because in other stories and other, you know, the folk tradition of this story does exist. So in other stories, the princess or the girl who comes in claiming to be a princess, she does it on purpose. She knows the prince is looking for a wife and that she knows how to get around the test or in some cases she even has a helper, an animal helper or a servant or someone who helps her figure out what the test is and how to overcome it. Um, But I feel like Anderson very specifically leaves all of that out. He makes the princess the way she is with no kind of deceit or trickery or mockery. It's just, this is who she is and she's come here. And there's no test here. So I know before I talked about the bridal test, here the bridal test happened before with the prince going around and looking for princesses. But when she comes to his palace, it's kind of the, it's the difference, right? So he's not looking for her. She's not looking for him. She just happens to come to this palace. And that's very much the story that Anderson is telling. So obviously when we hear the story, we're trying to put our own ideas of what happens. Because I remember when I read this, I was was trying to figure out like, oh, does she know about the test? Is this is how, is this the test that he's been doing on the other princesses? But very much Anderson's version is straight up. Nope. She's looking for a place to spend the night. The queen puts her to this test because she doesn't really believe that she's a princess. And there's no meeting between the two, you know, people who are, potentially going to get married in the end the prince and the princess so it's just in the weirdest sense it's just this random test the queen decided to put on to make sure the princess was actually nobility for no reason because what if she does the test and the princess goes okay great i'm gonna go home now i don't really want to marry your son because that could have happened and possibly should have happened it also just feels like if she is a real princess you know that does raise more questions like why didn't you have guards with you? Did you run away from home? Are you running away from something? Should we be worried? Are there people coming to attack us now by association of you? I feel like there's a lot more questions that need to be asked about her. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like there other stories do cover those. So it's, it's very interesting that Anderson chose not to. Um, 
and chose not to get into like the nitty-gritty or really talk about the princess at all I feel like she's just a motif she's just there to be the representation of nobility as opposed to a full character Mm. but we'll get into that a little bit later so just wanted to make the note that this was kind of an important scene that critics do point to because when we talk about criticism and fairy tales and stuff we're not just looking at what is there we're also looking at what isn't so the old queen went to the bedchamber removed the bedding and placed a single uncooked pea on the bed then she put 20 mattresses on top of the pea and placed 20 feather beds on top of that Afterwards, the princess was led to the bedchamber to sleep for the night. The following morning, the old queen asked the princess how she slept. Oh, horribly, exclaimed the princess. I could hardly sleep a wink. There was something quite hard in that bed, and my whole body feels like it is covered in bruises. It was horrible. One star on Yelp. (laughs) The old king and queen looked at each other and knew that she must be a real princess because she could feel that pee through all of the mattresses and feather beds. After all, only a real princess was that sensitive. And so, the prince married her. He was happy knowing that she was a real princess, and that pee was then displayed in an art gallery for all to see. Unless, of course, someone has since taken it. And that is the story of the princess and the pee. Originally known as the princess on the pea. Oh, on the pea. The princess on the pea. But I feel like the translation errors and stuff throughout time have just changed it, and it's more commonly known as princess on the pea. Well, very short, as we discussed before. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like even just in that middle part, we covered a lot of our thoughts already on this story, how she does not have agency, really, or does not appear to have like have any clear agency in the story she just kind of shows up but in other variations she does um she's more of a character not just a motif um what do you think of it uh i mean actually after researching it i do like it a lot more because i remember (laughs) when i read it the first time it was quite short and i didn't really know what to make of it but then after the research it kind of makes a bit more sense Um, And it does feel a bit more nuanced. So I know Anderson got a lot of criticism and a lot of flack to the point where critics were actually telling him to stop writing fairy tales and wonder stories because, (laughs) well, because this book was, this story was part of a four-part collection and some of the other stories, I'll link them on the website, but they're very weird. And they also kind of follow this trend of not really having a clear moral where you know at the end of it oh don't steal or don't lie or you know at the end of it you're just kind of left with thinking are princesses and women just supposed to be thin-skinned what is the what is the message he's trying to send um that you should be bratty that you should be snobby that you should you know be picky like what is the overall goal here and i think one question that comes up at the end of the story that i was thinking of as well is is she a real princess it, well, it comes down to what is a real princess, of course. Well, just by, like, does she have a king as a father, a queen as a mother? Do we know that? I mean, they never asked her that. She was just sensitive enough, no. right? We don't yeah. know. So at so at no point did they actually ask her, are you a princess? Like, wh- who is your 
father. And in a kingdom, obviously, you would know the different kings. You would know who the different royal families are. So at the end of the story, we're told, yep, she's a princess because she couldn't sleep well. But we don't actually know if she is a princess or not. We have no verification. It's just this arbitrary test that decided that she was a princess. And then it's the same nonsensical reasoning that led to her getting married to the prince. And I feel like the overall message that a lot of critics take away from this is that the nobility is ridiculous. Like this is, they go to through so many lengths and through so many hoops to try and keep the bloodlines pure, to try and keep, you know, the power and the money and the authority within families. And there's just this great divide between the upper class and the lower classes. And you should be able to tell if someone is nobility by the way they act. Um, but this is the most arbitrary test they've done and at the end of it we still don't know if she's a princess or not like if she's actually a princess so it's kind of a criticism of that um but anderson might have had different reasonings yeah and i'll get into that during the five fantastic finds because it is more about his personal thoughts on the upper class and how they could potentially have shaped the story as opposed to what you can take away from the story just on its own um so i'll leave that for a separate thing but yes i think when i read this through that kind of lens i was left kind of feeling okay even if the princess wasn't even air quotes princess wasn't using any kind of deception or any kind of trickery that we know of at the end of the story we're left thinking how silly and ridiculous this royal family is and we're left thinking is she actually a princess so it might be class commentary, which is usually, you know, class commentary comes up quite a lot. You can use it for almost most fairy tales like Snow White, Cinderella, the basic ones. And I think it comes up here again is they've gone through such great lengths to prove that she's not a princess or she is a princess. And at the end of the day, all they really needed to do was, you know, find out who her parents were, if that's what they were worried about. But that isn't good enough. Just having, you know, a DNA test isn't apparent is good isn't good enough for these royals. No, There's no, a no. certain princess they're looking for. Yeah, so it's kind it's of I feel like how. Well, yeah, it's, it's like it's the mockery. I feel like it's a mockery of the royals and of the nobility who put so, so much stock in what a real noble looks like that they don't realize how silly it's become. And I feel like this is actually relevant because a lot of people say this in comparison to the British royals nowadays where you have, you know, Meghan and Kate and there's this whole list of arbitrary things that people think a princess needs to have or a duchess needs to have. And so people, you know, you have those articles of, oh my God, she wasn't wearing stockings or, oh my God, her nail color was wrong. She does this and it's shocking. She wears the same dress twice. So it's just kind of this ridiculous notion of the nobility to me. Yeah. Um, as a kid, I, I liked this story a lot because I thought it was absurd. You know, I wouldn't be able, mm -hmm. be able to point out why. I just thought like, it was just funny. You know, this idea of it's this princess. And also, the, the, in all the the imagery of it, you know, and all the fairy tale books they had, it was so funny seeing all these mattresses stacked on top of each other. And in my head, yeah. I'm like, oh, that would just be fun to, like, be on. And I feel like that would make a great, like... <laughs> You know, as a kid, I'm like, I could build forts out of these mattresses. That could be lots of fun. Well, I think that's why it's such a long lasting one because of the hyperbole, right? We have, when you think of the princess and the pea, the first thing you think of is the stack of mattresses. So it's a very clear, 
even for kids, I think it's a very clear visual that stays with mm-hmm. you just because of how insane it is. Yeah. And that's that's why she my niece asked me about this is because someone had referenced that hyperbole um, and she didn't understand it. Right. So I was explaining the story to her. Um, but reading this through. My my takeaway from it was actually not so much like I wasn't even my first takeaway was not even like looking so much as the princess and her modism stuff. I was looking at the keywords old king, old queen. And I was interpreting this as the the queen was just kind of making up a test. Like, I, I interpreted this as she did something to the mattresses where it was going to be uncomfortable. And then, but then told everyone there was just one pee there. And she was like, oh, she's a real princess. You got to get married now, man. You got to take over the kingdom. You got to, <laughs> you got to do your job. <laughs> So I saw this as like parents trying to marry off their son who is incredibly picky. And they want arranged marriage, but they can't just say, you know, yeah. arranged marriage. At one point they got into a corner to say that he could choose and stuff and they were like, oh shoot, what do we do? What do we do? Um, what I do actually, so side note, what I do wish had been a part of more of the modern kind of picture books that get put of this story. I really wish this P being put in an art gallery at the end was in more stories because I feel like that's such a funny image. It's this so random funny. pea that, you know, a lot of like, royals probably wouldn't even eat them. It was probably peasant food. It was probably, you know, not that great back then because peas have evolved quite a lot. If you've seen pictures of what peas look like before, they were kind of hard and yellowish. Um, but obviously, like, I wish this kind of imagery was put in more books because i feel like it really ties the whole nonsense together where it's like you have this random object that someone decided was important and now it's in a gallery and then you know someone might steal it or take it and so all of this is meaningless so it's quite funny that it brings everything together and i feel like the english translations have forgotten this gallery part and we'll get into that later as well because we have a bone to pick with the translator Um, But I feel like this really brings it all together to kind of show how insane this is that you've taken something that didn't have meaning. So let's say even the girl and you've given it an arbitrary meaning and then you've put it on a pedestal. And now other people will also come and think it's important just because you've decided it is. So I feel like it's like a mini story about the overall story in a way. Mm -hmm. But yes, I feel like the princess and the pea is iconic just like cinderella's slipper is just like the apple is just like you know sleeping beauty spindle when you have a fairy tale that has a very clear icon that can be related to i feel like kids will remember that they won't remember you know the picky prince or the stormy night but they'll remember the stack of mattresses and i think that's all you really need in Mm -hmm. even oral storytelling is to have this big imagery that gets people to recognize your story versus other stories yeah, I want that iconic shot, that image that stays in people's heads so that they go, yeah, that was <laughs> that was that story. And that's totally what these original folklorists and fairy tale, like people just telling stories around a campfire were going for at the end of the day. So good on them. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we're still talking about the, the Princess of the Pea, then the one other thing I want to point out and the thing that I love the, the random things that bother me. But when I saw they put the P in the art gallery, I was like, mm, why an art gallery? Like, why not a history museum? Like, this is how these 
this king and queen got married or whatever. It's like, we're going to put an art gallery for display. It's modern art. It's modern art. Is it representing the creativeness of, like, the queen? Like, I don't understand. Like, why art gallery? It's wonderful, but I don't understand. It's Anderson's commentary on modern art. This entire story is a commentary on modern art. Dun, dun, dun. And modern writing and how it's, it's meaningless. I don't know. I feel like if you give someone enough time, they can start to pull threads that aren't actually there. Oh, yeah. So you could say, ah, this entire story is about the fruitlessness of modern literature. Listen. I have watched enough YouTube essays to know that you can spin anything any way you want <laughs> as long as you have enough time and a camera or a microphone or a pen, whatever your tool is. Yeah, I feel like if you have a time, if you have a microphone, you can just sit there and pretty much come up with insane ideas. And sometimes the insane ideas start to make sense and then other people have to wonder if they're also insane. Also, I think I've learned... I don't know if I'm that sensitive. I, I definitely wouldn't have felt a pee through all of that. So I guess I've learned today I'm not a real princess. Wah, wah. Yeah, I, I would not feel it either. Well, we might not be sensitive to the pee, but we are sensitive to the time as it's running out quickly. So let's head on over to our five fantastic finds. Number one. The princess on the P is one of those whimsical stories that almost everyone knows about, but no one can tell you what the moral is. After all, if J.R.R. Tolkien is to be believed, aren't fairy stories and myths supposed to carry some moral or religious truth for their listeners to realize? As mentioned before, critics cited this lack of morals when they tore apart this tale along with three others in the collection, all of which Anderson wrote for children as he would deliver to children. Some critics even argue that Anderson should let off writing wonder stories altogether, given that he failed to apply adequate morals to the tale. And Anderson himself is also cited as saying in one of his letters that he's not fit to write these stories anymore and stuck to novels afterwards. So what did Anderson think of all of this before publication? We don't really know his intentions behind the stories, except for the letters he wrote about the four-story collection. He claimed that these stories would be his ticket to immortality. However, he astutely also wrote that it would not be an experience he would feel in this life, meaning he knew that the fame would be post-mortem. At first glance, The Princess and the Pea does not seem like a very deep or meaningful story. However, it is an immortal tale, largely due to the hyperbolic image of this mattress stack that stays in everyone's mind after hearing the story. On deeper consideration, some people argue that it is a tongue-in-cheek play on the nobility, and some even argue it mocks the social expectations for nobility to be sensitive and pure. The lengths that the prince and the queen will go to with their nonsensical test to ensure the princess is truly a real princess shows the lengths the nobles will go to secure their bloodlines. It has also been connected to tests that people will do to show that a woman is pure and able to be married in a completely different way, but that's for a different story. Still, one thing that people fail to realize is that the story could also be an allusion to Anderson's own relationship to the nobility. He was seen as something of a social climber and rejected by the Danish nobility as a whole. However, he believed his sensitivity was something inherent within his character that proved nobility outside of blood status. 
The critic Maria Tatar writes that unlike the folk heroines that Anderson drew his story from, the princess in his tale does not lie or use trickery to achieve her means. She simply is sensitive to the pea and expresses it. It is up to the reader to decide if she truly was a princess or if her sensitivity simply made her one. If Anderson's history is to be believed, then people would argue that it is Anderson's own take on himself. He is not noble by blood, but he is noble by spirit. Number two. The story got me thinking about sensitivity and what makes a person sensitive. As it turns out, I'm not the only one who thought about this, and thankfully, people a lot smarter and more qualified than me looked into this. And no, they didn't just stick peas under people's mattresses and ask if they had a good night's sleep or not. Psychology refers to those who are more sensitive than most as a hypersensitive person, or HSP for short. This is simply a personality trait, and the term was first made popular in the 1996 book, The Highly Sensitive Person, How to Thrive When the World Overwhelms You, by clinical psychologist Elaine N. Aaron. The book publishes all her research findings on the topic and what she learned on this trait from herself and others. For those with HSP, they tend to be more in tune with their emotions and can be seen as overly emotional. But they are also more sensitive to external stimuli like light, sounds, or even color. While the prince may have been looking for a long time to find a real princess, he actually would have a much easier time finding just a hypersensitive person. Aaron's research suggests that 15 to 20% of the population is highly sensitive. So what makes someone highly sensitive? Aaron's research indicates that this is an innate trait and is found in over 100 other species. But of course, there are also cases of people learning or adapting to be more sensitive as well. Number three. So Anderson wrote and released his Danish story in 1835, citing it as a childhood story he had heard, and many critics do believe that it is the Swedish version of the story he heard, not a Danish story, because this doesn't really exist in the Danish folk history. However, Anderson's story and the English translation of his story had many inconsistencies that can be attributed to the translator with the unfortunate name Charles Boner. Now, instead of working off of Anderson's original story, Charles translated the story from the German translation. So it was kind of like a translation of a translation. And although it is very possible that the version Charles was working off of had these changes already, the blame for them has infamously fallen on poor Charles Boner. The first change that has many critics up in arms was the turning of 1P into 3, either to align with the common fairy tale rule of 3 or simply because Charles thought that 1P was not enough. It is unclear why this change was made besides to give it more credibility as a wonder tale. The most damning change, however, that Charles Boner did was the ending. In Anderson's tale, as we mentioned, the pea ends up in a museum and the storyteller's whimsical voice joins in to kind of tell us that the story was true and that the pea might still be there. Now, blurring the lines between the fiction and fantasy elements supports scholars' views that this tale was one of mockery and jest and was made specifically for children. In Charles's English version, however, the story ends with a rhetorical question. Now, was not that a lady of exquisite feeling? 
his ending, while it can be taken as satire or as tongue-in-cheek, makes for a more literal reading of the story and removes the added metaphor of the ending where the princess, who may or may not be a real princess, is put in royal standing just as the pea, a common food item of peasants, ends up in a museum. It is remarkably unremarkable, but these few changes do change the course of the story. Obviously, no one who's read the story is going to be thinking about these, except for the scholars, but it's always interesting to know what the origins of a story were and how they've changed throughout time. This is inevitable, obviously, when you have oral stories, which change with each retelling, but you would think a little bit more care would be taken with physical written works. And the only person we have to blame is Charles Boner. Number four. Today's tale is classified as ATU 704 in the Aaron Thompson Uther Index. The ATU 704 classification is known as the Princess and the Pea, so it goes to show how iconic this tale is. Other stories that fall into the same classification are an Italian tale called The Most Sensitive Woman and an Indian tale called The Three Delicate Wives of King Virtue Banner, which is the most delicate. The first tale is about a prince who wants to marry the most sensitive woman in the world. So he goes out traveling and finds three sensitive women. The first had her head bandaged up because a single strand of hair fell out while it was being combed. The second was entirely wrapped in soft linen. You see, the previous night she slept in a bed that had a single small wrinkle in the corner of her sheet, and this made her quite sick. The third woman had her foot bandaged and propped up. She was crying in pain and explained that while she was walking in the garden, a single petal of a jasmine blossom blew into her foot on a light breeze. The prince decided that the third woman was the most sensitive woman in the world, so he married her. Was this the best decision? The story teller couldn't say, for they ran out of yarn. The second story is told using a framing device. While the king is traveling to see a monk, a goblin sitting on his shoulder entertains him with this story. There was once a king named Virtue Banner who had three princesses as wives. Their names were Crescent, Star, and Moon, and the king loved them very much. One day, when the king was playing with Crescent's hair, a lotus petal fell into her lap. She was so delicate that the petal wounded her, so she let out a scream and fainted. Startled, the king sent for a servant and a physician to attend to her. Once he knew that she was treated and comfortable, he went to be with his second wife, Star. While they slept that night, a moonbeam made its way through the window and landed on Star. She awoke crying that she had been burned. The king woke and saw blisters across her body and summoned a servant and physician to treat the burns. Meanwhile, the third wife, Moon, had left her room seeking the king. But as she walked in the quiet night, she heard the sound of pestles grinding grain from a far-off corner in the palace. She wrung her hands in agony and cried that the sound would kill her. The servants tended to her and found that her hands were covered in bruises. When the king heard of this, he ordered a cooling plaster to be made to ease her pain. The king sighed, thinking that while his wife's delicacy trait was a great virtue, it was also terribly inconvenient. Then the story returns to the framing device of the goblin telling his story. He asks the king 
which of these wives was the most delicate? To which the king answers, the third, for she was hurt by something that was unseen. Number five. There are many tropes that can be pulled from this story, and a lot of them are quite comical. The first is the suddenly suitable suitor trope. You know in a movie or a book where the two main leads can't be together because there is a power or class difference. Well, suddenly, at the crucial moment, the lower ranking one comes into money or was, to the surprise of everyone, a prince or princess the whole time. We love suddenly su suitable suitors in media like Game of Thrones, Sleeping Beauty, and literally every iteration of Cinderella ever. It's always nice to know that the rich, beautiful princesses and princes always end up together in the stories. The next trope is the nobility reveal, where a character accidentally reveals themselves as a member of the nobility or royal family, and this is usually done in fantasy stories where the character either wears something really expensive or they don't know how to do basic things like maybe cook something or start a fire or any other visible or social indicator of wealth. Usually the noble thinks they're doing a great job of hiding their true identity, but everyone around them usually knows the truth. Sorry, princess. Maybe take the tiara and expensive dresses off before trying to pass for a peasant. And finally, we have the honorary princess trope. We have no idea if the princess in this story is truly a princess or not. There is no DNA test. All we know is that she is delicate and sensitive. However, the queen and prince take this as confirmation of her status, and so she's considered every bit a princess. While I don't think they ascribe to the same thought as Anderson, where sensitivity makes you nobility, I think they were doing it just because they thought that because she's a princess, she's going to have these very specific attributes and elements to her character. Now, the honorary princess trope takes it a little bit further, and so we have princesses that aren't related by blood or marriage to a royal family, but they are considered royal to an extent. The most common example of this is Mulan. So Mulan, at the end of the first Disney movie, she ends up saving China and she becomes a member of the royal family, air quotes, when she gets the emperor's seal or his necklace. So a lot of people are very confused as how she can replace the princesses in the second Mulan movie. And it's because she's an honorary member of the royal family as well as the savior of China, duh. We also have this come up in Enchanted, we have it in Game of Thrones, The Princess Brides, and we also have it in Tiana and the Prince, so in Princess and the Frog, where the princess, air quotes, character is honorary at best. As always, if you want to see the show summary, then subscribe for updates on our website at talesfromenchantforest.com. And if you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at From Enchanted or on Instagram, Mastodon, or TikTok by our podcast name. For questions, comments, and guest requests, please send us an email to talesmechantforest at gmail.com. And if you have anything to share, then please don't hesitate. Remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard today and what we do here, then please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Unfortunately, I feel like fall is the perfect time to watch shows like Gilmore Girls, but I can't stand Gilmore Girls. At what point did it become too much, that show? Because um, I think I fell off of Gilmore Girls 
like in the last season, not the one that Netflix did. I can't remember which season it was, but I remember it being pretty late where I was like, I can't anymore. I can't. I think it all started going downhill once Rory kind of moved in with her grandparents and started acting very kind of entitled and strange. And honestly, I feel like Lorelai had her issues. Lorelai was a really problematic character as well. But at least with Lorelai, she had enough of a personality that I wanted to root for her. I was, you know, happy for her. I wanted her and Luke to have a great time. Um, But with Rory, I feel like she just became very insufferable when Mm -hmm. she was applying to university and then she was going to I think Yale with her grandparents and just in general I feel like everyone in the show kind of grew and developed including the grandparents but Rory just constantly got on my nerves yeah and it was really the hypocrisy I think the hypocrisy was insane to me um but I, I don't know what season that was. I don't know, like, where in the story that happened. I just remember for a while I was thinking, okay, this is going to pick up. This is going to be fine. Maybe she'll end up with Jess. Maybe she'll end up with, you know, Dean. Who cares? It'll be fine. As long as she's the same that she was in the beginning. But I feel like towards the middle of this story arc, whatever, I feel like someone went off the rails and they said that we all needed to hate Rory Gilmore because we all started to hate Rory Gilmore. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing. Everyone in the show continued to be fine and good. I love Lorelai so much, but Rory just mm-hmm. became insufferable. I feel, like, personally interested because I think I was the one who got you onto Gilmore Girls, if I recall. I was like, yeah, you should give it a shot. And now I feel bad. <laughs> no, I do. I don't. Listen, I liked the story of Lorelai. I really mm-hmm. liked herself, you know, her self-discovery journey. I liked that she got together with her parents, that she kind of reconciled that. I liked the Netflix version because at least when Netflix came in to do the, I think, the last season, the one where they went through every season, um, like literally every season, fall, summer, <laughs> winter, um, yeah. I feel like that kind of helped fix it a little bit. She was still, like, Rory was still very insufferable. Oh. She kept forgetting her boyfriend. It was so like, what the heck? It's just, it's very weird because I feel like the boys were also weird. Logan, I think that's his name. Um, Also very, very weird. But at least it was like, he wasn't a hypocrite about the kind of person he was, where I feel like Rory was constantly on this bandwagon of, I'm not rich, I'm poor, or I grew up struggling. But, you know, my grandparents are paying for this new science building. So let's just like put that under the rug. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like it diminished her character a lot. But, you know, I like the vibes. So I might rewatch the first couple seasons just because it's a really good fall show to have a small town um, America in the background. It's true. Those have been our hot takes on Gilmore Girls, the cool new show. It's very happening. divisive. People it really, really like Gilmore Girls or they really hate it. I remember my husband really couldn't stand Rory as well for the same reason is because she was so she was such a hypocrite and I felt like that drove him crazy so it wasn't a show that we could watch together so hopefully we'll find a nice fall show that we can watch together mm-hmm. that's a feel-good show that would be nice because I feel like crying shows are for winter but fall shows are just you know feel good summers for murders and mysteries and romances anyway that was um the beginning of my rant on Gilmore Girls which I feel like I've had before. Have we? I'm not sure. I don't know. I liked it. 
Not going to lie. I feel like we've derailed enough where I might just put this at the end as a blooper as like an additional here's been our takes on Gilmore Girls because it's <laughs> very much derailed us. Um, but I really liked it. So I think I think that might just come in at the end. Um, so for those of you still listening, thank you so much uh, for sticking around. We see you. But not really. But, you know, thank you. <laughs>